G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the round six review after another big weekend or four days of football. Some big results, uh, a few big upsets, uh, a bit of controversy, uh, some good games, some ordinary games. Uh, This was a round that pretty much had everything. As I say, very good evening to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? I'm well. Are you suggesting this round was one with the lot? Uh, yes, I was. What does that remind you of? The best burger in Melbourne, plain and simply. Uh, the beautiful Andrews hamburgers are 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Look, we're going through some tricky times. Great that they're open. Great that they stay open. Great that they are still providing those beautiful burgers and you are allowed to get in your car and go and get dinner for your family at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. We received a, a lovely, through LinkedIn, both you and I, Rowan, addressed to myself, a, a lovely communique from Oscar, who's involved with the AFLW team down at Geelong and absolutely cherishing our podcast during these tough times and can't wait to make the trip down the highway for one of those burgers. Unfortunately, because we're in the hub now, he's going to have to wait. But he's in Jan Juck and can't wait to get his hands on an Andrews hamburger. So everybody closer... Take advantage, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And if you want to rebuild, go to the very best. Property, rebuilt, or from scratch. Think West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. Back to you, Rowan. And that would indeed be a renovation with the lot. And uh, Oscar, sorry, but I do have to run through this very quickly. The soft yet firm buns, the best buns in town, the tender meat patties, the lettuce tomato, just beating with fresh moisture. Uh, These are farm fresh ingredients. These are rolls baked to perfection and tender meat patties grilled to an absolute tea. You will not find better burger ingredients or a better burger and you won't find a better renovated house than that done by West Point Properties. Thank you very much to our sponsors. Thank you to our audience. And I'm thanking you in advance because um, We've got a good episode for you as we wrap up everything that happened in this big round six. Let's do it right now. On Footyology, wrap around. Well, back to the beginning, Thursday evening, and it was Geelong playing Brisbane. And this was one finding you and I, and I suspect a lot of other people didn't see coming. Because the Lions, uh, they looked all right to begin with, but they were blown away by a terrific third quarter from the Cats. Seven goals, three, the highest scoring quarter of this season so far. And that ended up giving Geelong a 27-point win. 11 goals, 7, 73. Defeating the Lions, 6, 10, 46. Among the goals for the Catters, three to Hawkins. Two each to Ablett, Rowan and Menegola. 
for Brisbane. Rainer, too, their only multiple goal kicker. And uh, there were some fantastic performances in this game, Finey. I thought uh, Dangerfield and Menegola midfield, particularly for the Cats. Tom Hawkins was a terrific uh, spearhead and uh, really um, used his mobility to great effect, really uh, worked a, a long way up the ground. Sam Simpson coming in, mate, had an instant impact. He was absolutely terrific for the Cats. And I think the leading disposal winner on the ground, indeed he was, with 27 touches. And uh, midfield, they just did a number on the lines. He couldn't compete, really, save for Lockie Neal, who battled his little heart out for the whole game. But they just didn't have enough on their side. And extra points to the Cats, too, for doing this without, for three quarters, the services of both Quinton Narkel, who did a hamstring, and Mitch Duncan, likewise. Of course, the Lions losing Mitch Robinson later in the piece with a corked quad. But uh, a bit of a reality check for the Lions, who were flying funny. We've been wrapping them up big time, and deservedly so. But this was also a salient reminder, I think, of how good the Cats can be when all parts of that engine are firing. And that third quarter, it's funny because they cop a lot of stick for being a, uh, a side that plays slow football and, and uh, you know, sort of values its defence above its attack. But for all that, they're the heaviest scoring t- uh, side in the competition. And they rattled on those seven goals. Five of the, the seven came up in 13 minutes. So um, they were on a flyer and... Uh, You know, I I think when it's a big if, but when Geelong click like that, their best is as good as any team in the competition. How do you see it? Oh, gee. There was that point halfway through the second quarter where I really felt, and I mentioned this in our footyology final sign, thoughts start going through your mind. And Brisbane looks so good, that, that spicy, quick forward line of theirs with... Obviously, Cameron and Rayner and Link McCarthy and also Hipwood up there to provide some long-distance goal-kicking prowess when he can go on some sort of searching leads successfully. It just seemed to be overpowering Geelong. And at that point, Geelong lost two of their midfielders, their outside run, really, in Narkel and Duncan. And you just sort of... I just sort of started going through the mental process of no GMHBA Stadium, no Geelong, how far Brisbane. Uh, football's four quarters, though. And you're right, there is a version of Geelong that is irresistible. Is it sustainable? We've not seen it in recent years sustained through the finals. But this is an older team, Rowan, that surely, if any side benefits from shorter quarters, less football, therefore, less... Uh, stress on the body, it must be Geelong. So if you're trying to sort of unravel the puzzle that is a different year, maybe Geelong is well suited. It looks so on Thursday night. I'm very interested what the next couple of weeks hold for the Cats. Yeah, look, it it was impressive. They are a perennial. I just think they've been uh, part of the finals mix for so long now that we just tend to take them for granted a bit and gloss over them and uh, in the way we used to with Sydney, I think. And there's also, as there was with Sydney, an expectation that it won't quite be good enough. But I'm not sure that's the case. And we, we have, I've brought this up a bit, but I mean, they were pretty damn close to it last year, weren't they? They lost a qualifying final by 10 points they were expected to win. 
they lost a preliminary final to the eventual Premier after having wed that uh, at one stage with yep. a, a, a pretty handy lead. So, um, you know, even last year, their best was pretty close to good enough. Uh, I think they might be a little bit better again this season. As I said, I think... Look, there's no doubt. It's the oldest list in the competition, and are the oldest 22 in the competition. And they go out there each week with, what is it, five players who played more than 250 games. That's pretty unusual. And they can survive, I think, uh, and experience and also wise heads in these very fluid times. Hubs and stuff, I think, have more of an impact on young minds than older minds. I just think that they're well-placed to handle this as as well, if not better, than all the other Victorian teams, at least. Time will tell. All right, great win for the Cats. That was Thursday evening. Let's talk about Friday evening. Well, it was the Magpies and the Hawks. Big things expected from this clash. Let's be honest, didn't really live up to it in terms of the standard. A good win to the Pies in the end, 32 points, all set up with a, uh, well, comparatively blistering first term, 5-1 to the Hawks, one straight. And after that, this game was one hell of a slog. In fact, only five goals kicked by both sides in the remaining three quarters. So some pretty dour footy played. In the end, like I said, 32 points to the Pies. Eight goals, 11-59. Defeating Hawthorne, 3-9, 27. Brody Majek, terrific up forward for Collingwood. Four goals to him. Two goals to Hoskin Elliott. And only single goal kickers uh, for the Hawks. Poultry tally of three goals. Some great performance to the Pies, finally. Adam Trelaw. Absolutely prolific out of the middle. Ended up uh, with 35 touches and was great all night. Darcy Moore, outstanding in defence, both uh, defended and rebounded with aplomb. And he was a constant presence in this game. The Hawks just could not get around him. Brody Majacek, uh, he's got his good games tend to result in four goal. I dare say, without having looked it up, having the chance to look it up, I reckon he's got a few of those four goal hauls. But he was another one. He presented a terrific target up forward all evening on the lead and uh, really nice kick for goal. And uh, on a night where not many goals were kicked, his came at a premium. Uh, Hoskin Elliott too handy up forward when he needed to be. Jamie Elliott, different sort of role for him, really worked a long way up the ground, won plenty of the ball up near midfield, used it really well. He's a smart footballer. And uh, Wills and Pendlebury uh, getting among the touches too. And the Hawks just didn't have enough response to that really uh their lack of numbers in midfield i think shone out again james sicily valiant performance from him in defense winning his usual swag of touches but beyond that well tom mitchell got plenty of the ball didn't necessarily have a great impact on the game though harry morrison yeah again enough touches without having much impact will day in his debut probably the single best thing to come out of the game for the hawks who uh, were disappointing finally i think their limitations showed Similarly, the Pies showed that when they can take a more direct route to goal and move the ball a bit quicker, and I know I've been banging on about this, but they look a much better side when they move the ball on. The, I thought that they also benefited greatly from the injection of a debutant and a guy who's only, I think, had one game or two games previously. I speak of Isaac Kane or off the back line and at a boss of... OK. R2-D2? 
R2-Bosenovalugi or Bosenovalugi, either way. And, and I know we road-tested R2-D2, but uh, apparently weren't inventing the wheel there, and that's been a common theme over the weekend. So, uh, interesting footballer, young R2, because he, unlike Collingwood players who instinctively get the ball, go back, measure their options and look for a uh, option farther afield by foot, he seems to, be, seems to be a bit in perpetual motion, gets it, plays on immediately, and that sort of havoc in the forward line is exactly what that forward line needs, because obviously, apart from my check, they don't have a reliable tall target in Mason Cox, he's not a reliable tall goal kicker, so ball that hits the ground must surely suit to Goey. I think the battle of the coaches, and these are two of the... Are they the two most experienced coaches in the AFL? Um, I think so. Off the top of my head, yeah, I think I'd have to be. Well, 2007 start for one, 2012 for the other. Yeah, so plenty of coaching years behind them. Definitely the victory went to Nathan Buckley. Very smart because, of course, with Stevenson having kicked the first two goals in their last three games out of the goal square, you could have almost penned that in, but don't pen it in. He played further up the ground to start off, and so did Elliot, and actually they got a lot of drive out of the centre and off the wings from those two players, so that would have been something that Alistair Clarkson, I doubt, could have planned for. All in all, for Hawthorne, the big problem, without Bruce up forward, I mean, the forward line looks pretty thin anyhow. Uh, John Patton, we saw... Get that hamstring injury, lots been made of his reaction to that. We talked about it on Friday night. But uh, the overall issue is, of course, for John Patton, missing football is just so frustrating. But for Hawthorne, it's the stop start to now. The important recruit, the key forward, has not really had a clean run at it. And that was his problem with GWS. So their forward line's a mess. And Piopolo. No, I don't think so. Frawley up the other end? No, I don't think so. I think they're now carrying some oldies, but not necessarily at this stage of their career goodies, Rowan. Yeah, I think you're right. I must admit, I, I did, was watching those two you mentioned for the Hawks, thinking, uh, I think time's up, fellas. Hey, uh, you mentioned Patton, um, the hamstring injury. You'd think that's at least two or three weeks for him. Um, yeah, it's quite sad to see him in such distress on the bench. The other injury I should have mentioned before too, and uh, sad for a different reason, Will Kelly in his debut and uh, was very impressive, but uh, a really bad dislocation of the left elbow there yep, near yes. the end of the game. So he will, of course, bounce back at some stage. Just really quickly on Kanor, and we were both impressed with him. We discussed this on Footyology Final Siren. Beautiful kick of the footy. When I talk about that speed of ball movement, you know, it's not just how quickly you deliver the ball. I reckon it could be how quickly, or, or sorry, the velocity you get on your kicking. Now, that's one thing I noticed with Kanor, and I was thinking, gee, I wonder if that had much of an impact inside 50. Well, let's have a look at the stats. He was second highest inside 50 uh, on the numbers for the Pies. So that could have been a reason. So quicker, cleaner delivery inside that forward arc makes a heaps a heap of difference for the Magpies, who are back on the winning list. All right, there are. Yeah, sorry, you got something else there? No, nope, that'll do me for that game. I'm just not looking forward to the next one. All right, well, uh, you're going to take the uh, lead on this one, so be prepared. That was <laughs> Thursday and Friday. Let's talk about Saturday. 
All right, Saturday games uh, started nice and early. 12.35pm was the first on the Saturday menu and it featured Fremantle playing St Kilda and this was a, as it turned out, a ring-a-ding-dinger and uh, unfortunately finding not a great ending for your Saints. The Dockers winning their second straight and second game of the season, 12-7-79, defeating the Saints 11 7 73. Tabana, two goals for the victors, 5-2. And Schultz, too, including the match winner with about a minute and a half left on the clock for the Saints. Membry, three. And Jones, two. Uh, didn't look like it was going to end up like this after a blistering first term for the Saints. Finey, how did it unravel? Boy, unravel, did it? What? The first quarter was simply go forward. Pick your goal kicker. Fremantle had no response to St Kilda's ability to pick up the ball in their forward line, hit a target, kick a goal. Max King only kicked one goal, but was proving a real menace because he was attracting a crowd, bringing the ball to ground. Uh, Membry was uh, involved. Dean Kent got involved. Loney, it was simply football at its... At its easiest, almost, because Fremantle had no response. Uh, Fife, who came into the game with an injury cloud, was well held by Steele. There was nothing really going forward for the Fremantle Dockers. Walters wasn't having much of a say on the game. The only player that was really doing anything was Sean Darcy. Um, Young, very impressive young player for them. Uh, injured himself while tackling, looks like a syndemosis injury, the injury of 2020. In a quarter time, it was a matter of how fast and killed her, in a sense, because the only factor that you do have to consider in these one-sided games is that it's not going to run that way forever, and the St Kilda back line had not been tested, so we weren't quite sure as to what response would come from the forward set-up for Fremantle, whether or not Tabiner could get his hands on the ball. He actually took a couple of good marks in that quarter and looked a bit promising. Well, uh, that was one game, now game two. Uh, halfway through that second quarter, Freo had attacked quite comfortably and, and, and quite regularly, but St Kilda got a goal back the other way. Uh, Might have been a goal to King, or uh, King was involved anyhow. And then he actually had a snap a minute afterwards, and it would have returned sort of restored St Kilda's 37-point lead halfway through that quarter. He missed. The ball went forward for Fremantle. And from that point on, for the next quarter and a half, St Kilda didn't score. The very same end to which they kicked seven goals too in the first quarter. They kicked 0-0 in the third. This was incredible given that the best player on the ground, not even just for Fremantle, halfway through that second quarter when St Kilda was still up by five goals was Sean Darcy, and he got taken out by a bump that I'm sure the MRO officer is chewing over as we speak. Um, well, hang on, just let me chip in there because they have uh, done their chewing. And let uh, me guess. Ben Long, let me guess. Yeah, I would yes. say three weeks. Uh, no, uh, Ben Long has uh, the incident has been classified as being directly referable to the tribunal. Okay. Uh, which uh, it's classified as careless conduct, severe impact, high contact, can't offer an early plea, and yep. you'd think that's going to be minimum three weeks, possibly four. Yeah, yep. Uh, so, look, it's it's interesting, actually, because 
in a sense, it's how players are told to go for the ball by protecting the ball with their body. But uh, you still have to have duty of care for the player that's there. And he came into that pack and took out a player who was about to pick up the ball with his hip. So three or four weeks seems just as, you know, a punishment for a player that I don't think was uh, intentionally being insidious, but certainly dangerous in the modern game. St Kilda in the last quarter certainly had their opportunities. The game actually, hero villain, hero villain. Walter started the game by kicking the ball the wrong way and it was hilarious. Did you see that? I did. It was uh, it was hard to believe. Very, very, only, very good play by third, Walters. Only third or fourth time I could remember that. I remember Kevin Sheedy doing it uh, in a big game against Collingwood in front of about ninety thousand people. But um, I guess yeah, most, well, most, he, the most famous must be David Roden because he scored. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, but he made up for it. Walters was fantastic for the Dockers. He was. He was the difference. You know. It, but he was almost villain again because he gave away a 50-metre penalty to Zach Jones and that levelled the score with a minute and a half to go. But Walters loves a close finish and it was his clearance that got the ball down and enabled Schultz to kick that winning goal. I think the fair result, no question about it. St Kilda uh, had some... Now, shame, you know the old saying, Rowan, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. St Kilda has given up the two biggest leads this year and there was a sense that after that North Melbourne game and the break, a lot of people sort of said, oh, St Kilda, they're better now. They wouldn't do that. Well, they did and it's disappointing and Brett Ratton indicated in the press conference that there will be players to pay the penalty because there's no doubt that when the pressure was on, a few players, including some big-name players, went to water. I'll be interested to see what happens on Thursday night. Fair play to the Dockers, though. Let's be honest. You know, big outs, Griffin, Logan, Hogan, and they were able to come back. You mentioned that uh, in the third quarter, Geelong kicked the highest quarter score of the year, seven goals, three. Well, St Kilda 7-2 was a short short half head behind it, and they've lost the game. So, well done to the Dockers. Yeah, well, just very quickly, yeah, ditto your comments on the Dockers, because I've I've been pumping it for a a side that was winless until a fortnight ago. I've been pumping their tyres up a bit, but they have been very competitive. And... uh, I think they deserve this. Um, Darcy Tucker also worthy of mention. I thought he was really good for them. Tabiner definitely an improver. Brayshaw came into it. He's been criticised in some quarters this season for not getting enough footy. I thought he was good for them. Um, so they've earned this, I reckon. They've earned the last couple of uh, sets of four points. And uh, good luck to them. Uh, now they, they get to go back home and uh, maybe they'll rack up a few more. All right, that is the first Saturday game. Let's move to the second. Well, we thought West Coast might have turned the corner with a good win against Sydney last week. Uh, Certainly didn't hurt their prospects of building on that coming up against the hapless Adelaide of 2020. And uh, look, the Crows weren't, I wouldn't call them hapless but uh, never really likely to win. And in the end, the Eagles cruised, you could say, to a pretty handy 33-point win. 10 goals, 7, 67, defeating Adelaide 5-4-34. Two goals to Darling, the only multiple goal kicker among eight individual goal kickers for West Coast. All singles for the Crows. Really good signs for the Eagles, I thought, finally, on uh, Tim Kelly. Uh, His last two games have probably been his two best for the Eagles. Dom Sheed, very good. Jack Redden, good. 
uh, Elliot Yogood and um, Oscar Allen, who I thought gave him a real uh, uh, improvement against the Swans, uh, doubled up on that with another good game. Uh, Crows, well, Brady Smith tried hard. Uh, ben Keys showed a bit. Matt Crouch got enough of the ball. Uh, but it was a, a, all a bit sameish for them. They just don't have the cattle anymore. Um, I'll let you uh, give a more detailed summary here, Fanny, but don't forget the incident after the end of the game between the two Ruckman. Be- best incident. Best. Yeah, okay. Best part of the game. Phone. You know, it's, not, it's, it, it's like um, phone wars, isn't it? Advantage. Yes. Advantage Nat and Nui. Very, very funny. And we can talk about that after. A quick look at the game. This was still not West Coast clicking into gear. No question about it. They go back to Perth with three wins. Okay, one of them came before the 81-day break for COVID. You know what? It gives them the mathematical platform to improve once they're back home and become a threat. That's all I can say. 49 inside 50s to 24. They really should have made more of it, to be honest. The Adelaide team doesn't have a forward line, per se. Not one that can kick many goals. Their midfield is sort of pedestrian. And they got a bit of drive off the back line, actually. Um, uh, Smith, Brody Smith, sort of turned the clock back a bit because he's he was always a big possession winner and a bit of drive there. As you said, best news for the West Coast Eagles is that they head back with Kelly having slowly but now markably hit form. I thought he was best on ground. He he or uh, Jeremy, Jeremy McGovern who really commanded the centre-half back post without too much opposition. He when he can pair off and just become an intercept player and do so comfortably, he is very good at it. And I know I am critical of the McGovern's at time, but this was certainly a game where Jeremy Shun. The battle between Natanui and O'Brien was interesting. Good on the young fella for taking it up to the player considered at least tap ruckman-wise as one of the best in the competition. So kudos there. No question that he got beaten by Natanui, but he certainly wasn't disgraced. And all in all, I think the best aspect of this game for West Coast Eagle was was the former Kelly. Yo now starting to hit some consistent form. And they go back, as I say, with 12 points, which keeps them equal. You know, they're... they're, they're in that group of teams, fifth to fifth twelfth or what, what have you, and they're within very much within catching distance of the top four as well, where they become a danger. So let's see if they regroup a bit better at home. Now, there's a bit of character that football often doesn't have, Rowan. What's that? Nat Nui and O'Brien, a phone after the game. Nat Nui obviously got a fair sort of sense of humour. And what did you make of the whole? It's it's as I say, it's a fun, it's sort of an interesting aside, a fun aside, in a game that as players are so scared to do anything noteworthy, aren't they? But there's no doubt Nick Nat has a bit of character, and so does, and we didn't know this, so does the big boy from Adelaide. I thought it was great. I thought it was one of the best things I've seen on a footy ground for years, and uh, some uh, someone I won't dob them in, but someone on Twitter actually tweeted me and said, "Hang on, I thought you were against the commercialisation of the game." <laughs> and uh, I said, "I think that might be taking it a little bit too far, mate." No, I thought it was. 
No, it was very, very funny. And, uh, I, I, you know, like if players can sort of go at each other, hammer and tongs for two and a bit, two and a half hours or whatever, and then, um, you know, seconds later come up with a, a beautiful gag like that, I, I reckon the game's still in a good place. So I, I thought it was terrific. Don't know who organised it, but uh, whoever came up with the PR stunt, it was an absolute winner. So uh, well done. And, take, and taken in good spirit as well. Yeah, no, he, he does seem like a nice guy, Riley O'Brien. And Nick Dat had some very um, nice words to say about him when he was interviewed after the game That's as right. well. Interest, interesting that it was a Samsung he was given and not an iPhone. Uh, it was Telstra that provided it, I think. But uh, yep. I, I always thought that iPhone was the uh, Telstra brand of choice, but uh, it appears not. Anyway, have you you an iPhone or Samsung man? iPhone. Yeah, I'm an iPhone. I'm an iPhone uh, person. I, I find it hard. It's being like being, I guess it's like the phone equivalent of uh, PC versus Mac, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, I'm certainly, I, you're better than me, but not brilliant. We're not exactly uh, it's sort of tech savvy. And having learned one format, there is no way I'm ever going to try to embark on two. It, it To me, it's the equivalent of being bilingual. Now, very hard later in life to suddenly, you know, oh, all of a sudden Rowan speaks Russian. Well, I can tell you, I ain't speaking Samsung anytime soon. All right. Uh, so, in a in a word, do you th- you're not convinced the Eagles are back? Correct. They're not back, which is good. It, it's it's how you view the paradigm. It's it's whether or not a team that's on three wins, which certainly puts them right in the mix, should be worried that they're not playing their best footy, or actually should be quite pleased that there's so much room for improvement. I would say they're nowhere near playing their next footy, which is great because especially because they're going back home, all that scope for improvement makes them quite dangerous as the season rolls on. Well, I'll make a prediction here and now. I reckon by the time their home stint finishes, they will be the flag favourite. Yeah, well, there you go. So I I understand that. That makes sense to me. All right. Uh, that uh, That is the Saturday games. Let's talk about Saturday evening. Rightio, Melbourne taking on Gold Coast, and you're very lucky, Finey, that I haven't had time to grab the audio from our Thursday podcast in which, doing the previews, I selected Melbourne, and you scoffed. You audibly scoffed, and uh, I would uh, just like to say, ha, 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 because in the end, Melbourne having a very good win, 17 points, admittedly one after the buzzer, but a good win. Over the Gold Coast Suns, 12 goals, 8-80, defeating Gold Coast, 9-9-63. Two goals to Fritsch, two to Sam Wiedemann, who showed a bit, and two to Petrarca. And for the Suns, well, they would have got, uh, certainly didn't take the points, but they would have been very heartened by the game of debutante Isaac Rankin, who ended up with three goals including an absolute gem, beautiful little shimmy before his first goal. Two goals to Ellis. Uh, for the Ds, Max Gorn, really impressive in the ruck. The on-ball division clicked. Viney, Petrarca, Oliver, all good. Hannon, impressive. Um, Langdon, good again. Stephen May, pretty resolute in defence. Gold Coast, well, they really missed Matt Rowell. And uh, let's have fingers crossed that they're not about to go into free for what they have the other seasons after good starts. You, you're pretty confident they're not. But 
Two losses in a row now after that great start to the season. Rankin really good for them. Charlie Ballard battled on in defence. Ditto Collins. And Greenwood, not bad. Midfield. Um, injuries. Uh, Tom McDonald got a what looked like a reasonably nasty poke in the right eye. And Brett Holman for the Suns had a rib injury. And how'd you say this one, Finey? You certainly didn't expect it. No, I didn't expect it. No. I've got a feeling Melbourne half didn't expect it either during that last quarter because they were getting very, very nervous um, as Gold Coast came at them. And uh, I got a sense that um, there was a little bit of unsteadiness amongst some of the Melbourne senior senior ranks. And luckily, for not luckily, thankfully for Melbourne, they were able to um, hang on to that lead and, in fact, increase it, as you said, with a goal after the siren. But that 17-point margin was a bit closer than that. There were certainly chances for Gold Coast in that last quarter to really uh, snatch the victory. Look, for Melbourne, it makes such a difference when Max Gorn plays a complete game of football. And I think you nail on the head. Did you have him as best on ground? Because I... Yeah. 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 And I don't know. Jared Witts this season certainly... And he started the season with um, some foot issues. So he had a limited pre-season. Then he had the break to maybe regain fitness. But he's certainly not the, if not effective Ruckman, then he was certainly a very difficult opponent in the last two or three years. And, of course, rewarded with leadership roles down or up at the Gold Coast. So a clear win there with Max Gorn. Can this now be the platform for Sam Wiedemann to become a regular in that forward line? Because they desperately need him, don't they? They desperately need a genuine forward. I would go so far as to say, um, in structural terms, behind Max Gorn, he's probably the almost the second most important player in their team. Yeah, yeah, they they are crying out for his consistent output at senior level. This is a a good kicking off point. So we'll see how he goes in weeks to come. I'm a bit disappointed in the Gold Coast midfield in as much that, look, Matt Rowell obviously took the AFL world by storm, but you cannot rely on a first-year player to be the be-all and end-all of a midfield. And when he goes down injured, failed to get the right sort of um, step up from players who were more senior. We've been told that they're second, third, or even even more experienced players, that that next raft of players, not these talented youngsters like Raul Anderson and Rankine, but you know, their next wave of players, Darcy McPherson, Braden Fiorini, that these guys are ready to take up their position as quality AFL midfielders, but they're not really. And David Swallow as well is... A bit of a frustration. I'm, I'm disappointed. I was disappointed in Gold Coast not being able to cover for Matt Rowell in a meaningful way. You shouldn't be missing a guy who's only played five games of football as much as they appeared to miss him at the stoppages against Melbourne. So that's a, a, a real worry for Gold Coast who fall off the map two years previously and without Rowell may do it again. I hope not. I really hope not, Rowan. Well, certainly poses a couple of uh, intriguing questions for next week. Can Melbourne use that game as a springboard into some better form? We know they're capable of. Can the Suns arrest the slide and not repeat the freefall of the previous 
two or even three years. It feels like it's becoming an annual event. Let's hope not for the sake of an even competitive competition. All right, that was one game on Saturday evening. Let's talk about the other one. Well, it was tight. It was another slog of a game. But in the end, victory to Essendon over North Melbourne by 14 points. Nine goals, 13, 67. Defeating the Roos, 7-11-53. They certainly haven't cruised to the line in any of their four victories this year, finding the Bombers. Uh, they're now, of course, 4-1 with a game in hand. So pretty handily placed. But their winning margins so far have been six points, six points, uh, lost one by one point, 15 points, and now 14 points. So they make hard word of it, hard work of it, but that has an upside too, and that is uh, a welcome resilience, I think. And they they grounded out, they toughed it out, and uh, some important players stepped up. Don't forget, this is a side uh, without its skipper at the moment in Dyson Heppel. And this week also without Jake Stringer, who was a big up forward and a big clearance winner. That was the issue for the Dons in this game. They certainly dominated possession, had the bulk of the inside 50 entries, but didn't have much of a forward line to speak of. Uh, Sean McKernan didn't have a good night. I don't think uh, he'd mind people saying that. It was fairly obvious. But they had a pretty undersized forward set up and uh, it made conjuring goals difficult. However, one man did come to the party on that score and not before time. And I've got to say, I have been a harsh critic of David Zaharakis, but this was one of his best games for a couple of years, I thought. Bobbed up at the perfect moment with three critical goals. One plenty of the ball, ended up with 20 disposals for the evening. Easily his best game this season. And in the end, it proved pretty crucial to an Essendon victory. Kyle Langford, also a couple of goals. Uh, for the Ruse, Zerha, two, their only multiple goal kicker. Um, a, a downside for the Bombers, though, Finey, and that is the uh, report or video report and suspension of Dylan, Dylan Shield. He, he has been given two weeks for a rough conduct charge, careless conduct, uh, high impact and high contact. And uh, they will miss him because uh, it wasn't his absolute best on Saturday evening, but still an important possession winner for them. Uh, they're getting some really consistent performances from some important players over Don's too. I'd like to single out Andy McGrath. He has been great in every game this year, I reckon. He'd be leading Essendon's best and fairest at the moment. He just, uh, look, he occasionally... Bombs away with his kicking without looking hard enough, but he wins a stack of the ball. And Darcy Parrish finally got a decent length run at it in midfield. And uh, once again, every time he gets a, a shot in midfield, he does the job beautifully. He ended up with 21 disposals. And again, a critical part of Essendon getting over the line. North Melbourne, finally, they've got some uh, four losses in a row now, and this season is rapidly going off the rails. They have some major issues up forward. No Nick Larkey at the moment, and Ben Brown, whew, boy, is he struggling. He really struggled, dropped a couple of sitters on Saturday night, was pretty easily handled by Kyle Hooker, and uh, North has some thinking to do about their forward structure. Todd Goldstein, great in the ruck for them. Jai Simkin, pretty good. Uh, so, uh, you know, gave a bit of grunt as he tends to do and uh, Trent Dumont, not bad. But that was about where it ended for them. Of course, doesn't help missing your two uh, most important players, arguably, in uh, Ben Cunnington and Jack Zeeble. And then uh, 
add a third one to that. Uh, Jed Anderson, a late withdrawal replaced in the side by Williams, who'd been dropped. So uh, they did it tough on in personnel terms. So you could argue in one sense they did well to hang in there, but didn't often look like they're going to pull this game out of the hat. And in the end, the Bombers prevailed. They haven't played fantastic football, Bombers, but the Wadda says they are 4-1, game in hand, and uh, pretty well set for a pretty decent tilt at a finals campaign. How'd you see this one? Yeah, sneaky how they're 4-1, and one, and with the game in hand, really, it could easily be equal top of the ladder. It It's quite fascinating because, as you said, they haven't set the world on fire, nor have they had particularly good run with injuries. Still no Danaher, so this forward line that relies quite heavily on Stringer has uh, lost probably their most dangerous component, Heppel. I mean, these are major outs, major outs. And along the way, you know, niggling little losses of a merit here, now Shield there, Fantasia here. And somehow, Essendon are 4-1. and one. Now, if we're going to give West Coast the benefit of the doubt and say that there might be better football ahead for West Coast, making them a real danger for top spot and for the premiership, I'm not going to say Essendon are necessarily uh, dangerous for the flag yet, but surely there's better to come from Essendon if they can get a fair run with a 22 I don't know how long Stringer's out. The problem is Stringer might be out just for a damn long time. But can oh, they... At least, a, at least a couple of months. Yeah, that's right. So can they put together a team and keep together a team that has a great springboard into the season? We, though, see with North Melbourne how quickly things can drop off. They look very good before and after the break. Uh, we're talking about a side now that hasn't won in four matches and as you say, has a full forward that's completely off. You know, he's completely off. That's what you can say. It's funny, isn't it? We we sit here, and it's harder with our own teams because you do have that emotional input, and we try to bring you these match summaries and match previews on a Thursday impartially, but it's hard for us. And I know Rowan in no way took any pleasure in pointing out the poor season that Zaharakis was having. And I'm sure he's wrapped that he was able to turn it around. But it's funny how you get sort of painted as, well, you said Zaharakis is no good. No, Rowan said he was not playing well. And likewise, a uh, bit of a fan of Andrew Phillips, and I've got to say he got his colours lowered, and I wonder whether the Bell Chambers boosters are going to be on Rowan's case as well. But believe you me, and I've rarely go to the stats, Rowan, if anybody has a go at you for saying, you know, you're on Zarakis' case, yeah, what do you got to say now? You're going to apologise. Prior to this game, Zaharakis was averaging 10.3 possessions a game and 0.4 goals. Now, in this game, he had 20 possessions, virtually double his season average, and three goals, which is, of course, something like seven or eight times his season output. So, I think it's fair enough to have criticised Zaharakis, who had two kicks last week and three goals this week. Hopefully, it parlays into a good rest of the season because that's exactly what Essendon needs. Good luck to the Z-Man. That is a big turnaround and well done. All right. Uh, there is Saturday's games. Let's finish off wraparound with the three played on Sunday.
All right, first game on Sunday, and this was arguably, given the circumstances and the opposition, the victory of round six. And it was on behalf of Port Adelaide who ran out 17-point victors over GWS, nine goals, nine, 63, defeating the Giants, 6-10-46. All single goal kickers for the power. Jeremy Cameron, the only multiple for the Giants with two. Um, this is a great win by Port Finey, and they they have a habit of doing this. You sort of uh, you go off them, they have an ordinary one, and you think, uh, I don't think they're much chop, and then they turn it on. And they turned it on today. They got off to a better start than the Giants, didn't really reflect it on the scoreboard, had eked out a narrow lead by half time. Uh, but uh, in fact, in the third quarter, it looked like the Giants were going to roll over the top of them. The Giants actually dominating most of the footy in that third term. Uh, but somehow, only getting two goals, four out of it, and uh, wasting some opportunities. And Port made them pay because Port had by far the better final term, four goals, three in that last quarter for them. Uh, they got a goal, important goal from Todd Marshall which gave them a 16-point lead late in the piece. And by that stage, they'd uh, racked up 11-3 to three inside 50s. In fact, the final term was a good reflection of the tie to play. 17-6, the inside 50s in that final quarter, Port's way. And they really found something. And this was despite the fact they didn't get much out of their spearheads. Uh, Dixon and Westhoff seeming to get in each other's way a fair bit in this game. Um, so they relied on uh, other sources for their goals, as they have in previous seasons of recent uh, times, and they got them. They got uh, one from Boat, they got one from Amon, got one from Motlop, got one from Powell Pepper, and a really important player for him, Fine. He kicked a, an important goal, but he did far more than that, was uh, Kane Farrell. Um, he, he was terrific for them. He's an interesting player because he's been around a bit, uh, been in and out, but... Uh, Look, he may have played a better game than this, but this was certainly the best one I've seen him play in his time with the power. And he was really pivotal to this victory. Um, disappointing by the Giants. And I hope this isn't becoming their shtick, that uh, just when they look to be getting back to their best, they sort of uh, let one go, let one under their guard. And that's what it seemed like today. I, th I think Port's ferocity at the ball surprised them a bit. Um, and in the end, Port really, uh, to bring it back to basics, just seemed to have a touch more hunger than the uh, the Giants, who will need to get on their bike. They can't afford to drop too many more games like this. But uh, Farrell, really impressive, I thought. Uh, Hamish Hart looked good again. Dan Houston, good. Carl Amon, who's starting to play some decent footy for the power. He was good too. Lockie Whitfield, probably the Giants' best. Cornelio, not bad. Uh, Nick Haynes, uh, interestingly, sort of almost tagged out of it in a defensive role, didn't have the same influence today. And uh, even their reputed goal-kicking stars couldn't give them a lift, only six goals for the afternoon. And uh, Cameron, like I said, the only multiple goal-kicker there. So another good win for the power finding. And uh, if people were sort of having doubts after last week's defeat, well, they might have to think again because it was a, a really good win for them and they would be understandably wrapped with it. What do you think of it? He's, they've got a couple of fascinating players in that team, Port Adelaide, uh, amongst the young brigade that have given them such a 
so much impetus last season and this season. We know we love them. Rosie, of course, the injured Dersma and Butters. Everyone knows. There's also been a doubling down in effort by some of their established stars. In other words, a return to best form by Dixon and great to see Powell Pepper have a big say in the game. He's been good this year, but this week his um, ability to get the ball matched his ability to make way for others. Ollie Wines is working his way into the season nicely. Do you want to say hi to his parents? I'm sure you do. Uh, hi to uh, Jane Wines, great friend of the show and uh, a, a lovely lady and uh, hello to you and family. So the two players that fascinate me, and by the way, well done to incorporate Yiddish into your match review for the first time. Well, not the first time, yeah. but good to see you. do that? Using the word shtick. Oh, shtick. I like that. I do use that a bit. Yeah, nice word. Uh, Kane Farrell is sort of the part-time ponytail, wasn't he? He started his career playing one game in every eight when they just needed an extra man. I reckon he's been there five or six years. Yeah. I wonder how many games he's played. Um, wouldn't be a whole heap, but this was the best of them. And another player who has been on a list for, I reckon, eight years. I've been around for eight years and not played a lot of football. Trent McKenzie, the ex-Gold Coast player. Now, of course, he sort of was considered a one-trick pony, wasn't he, McKenzie? Just a long kick and not much else. But he's actually become a hard-working defender. He spent a bit of time on Jeremy Cameron today with success. He's really been able to work hard to get his league career. He's sputtering and stuttering league career going after about eight seasons. Just on Farrell, uh, this is only his third season, actually. and really? uh, Yeah, but only a dozen games before this season. So, uh, oh, I thought he'd been around longer. Sorry. He's found the opportunities hard to come by. Um, no, really good win to the power. Let's see if they can put together a few on the trot. All right, second last game of the round. And, uh, gee, don't think we want to talk about this one too long, but we will. All right, so, uh, well, when they're putting together a compendium of the highlights of season 2020, I'm tipping that this one will not get a Guernsey because it was a shocker from a purely aesthetic point of view. In And uh, fairness, played in very difficult, wet conditions but just a scrap. And in the end, uh, resulting in the second lowest aggregate score of the entire AFL era. Finding how's that? The second lowest aggregate Amazing. score in 31 seasons. And it saw an eight-point win to Richmond. And uh, in the context, eight points might as well have been eight goals. Four goals, 10, 34, the Tigers. Defeating Sydney, three goals, eight. 26. Uh, such a scrappy game that indeed after quarter time, we saw a total of three goals kicked in three quarters of footy by two teams. Two to the Swans after quarter time and just one to the Tigers. Uh, needless to say, all single goal kickers in this game. And the first of Richmond's goals actually came from the first attack and from a fairly controversial free finding, Callum Mills pinged for a deliberate rush behind, which I actually thought was fair enough. He had a chance to 
do something positive with the ball and opted to retreat through the goalposts. And I thought he was rightly pinged. Jack Rewalt, the grateful recipient of the free kick. Dusty Martin had their second on the board. Shy Bolton, their third. Well, how often does that happen? A side can kick only one goal and three quarters of footy and still win the game. Tells you a bit how uh, unappetising a contest this was to watch. I, I umpired a lot of games like that. Yeah, were they fun? They were VAFA, sort of um, fifth division reserves. Yeah, well... That says it sure all, this, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not sure the standard was much better. I, look, having said that, I'll give points to the Swans for at least hanging in there, given their personnel issues at the moment. Now, we've talked on a weekly basis about their lack of forwards. Buddy Franklin's absence, Sam Reid's absence, just having left a huge hole. That was compounded by uh, season-ending injury to Sam Naismith in the ruck. Callum Sinclair's out, so their rucks have been paired back too. And uh, they cannot take a trick. Aaliyah, Aaliyah, a late withdrawal today. So they had the likes of Jordan Dawson going up in the ruck. And in fact, I need to check this again, but at one stage, well into the second half, uh, the Swans had actually literally won one hit out for the entire game. So uh, that is always going to make it pretty difficult. And then uh, the, not cream, on the sour cream <laughs> on the horrible tasting cake was a uh, what looked like it might be quite a serious medial ligament injury to Josh Kennedy. So you then lose your uh, best player and most important midfielder. Could not take a trick at all. Just a dirty day, but for all that, they hung in, they hung in, they conjured a late goal, and uh, in the end probably did well, to be honest, to restrict the losing margin to only eight points. Uh, hit-outs, final hit-out tally was 32 to the Tigers, five to Sydney. I wonder how many games have seen a side win fewer than five hit-outs in AFL history. I dare say not many. Uh, I guess you've got to take into consideration Richmond's absentees too. Certainly um, didn't make them as classy in our fit as we've come to expect. No Edwards, no Hawley, no Cochin. Um, but got the job done. A few... Um, a few spare parts coming into that side and doing their job. Uh, what'd you make of this one? Oh, you've said it all, haven't you? For the Sydney Swans, um, they go in each week without players. And do you think, how can they possibly cobble together a side without Ruckman, without forwards? Now they lose out of a pretty shallow midfield, one of two key midfielders, he and Parker carrying the can as they have done in previous years. The courage was there, but of course the firepower wasn't, even though there was little coming back the other way. So I'd say this, that Richmond dogs a huge bullet in that they win a game with personnel problems of their own that would normally have been insurmountable. And I would say only playing Sydney and maybe Adelaide given their current mindset and the way they're playing football, were the only games that Richmond could have won. But they played Sydney at the right time. They get the four points. And some of these, we know that, obviously, as long as they're out of Melbourne, there's going to be no Edwards or Basher Hawley. So that's a problem. And there's no imminent return either for either Nan Curvis or for Dion Prestia. So we're talking about, you know, an extended period without decent players. Coxon will come back sooner than those other two. Lynch played, but uh, should he have played? 
Well, he got through the game. I don't know. His hand won't be any more broken, I guess. The upshot was that it's hard to say that any of the players they brought in gained much out of the game because it was such a, such a slog. Four points, one, move on. It's going to be hard for the Tigers, but I guess you'd have to say well done for either team winning that game because they were both stricken with injury. All right, uh, win to the Tigers. Final game of the round between Carlton and the Western Bulldogs. Let's wrap that one up. All right, well, round six finished off with a game between the Bulldogs and the Blues. And what a triumph this was for Carlton Finey. Uh, I'd say absolutely their best win of the season, or certainly on a par with the win against Geelong. Set up early on, and in the end, they gave the Bulldogs, the informed Bulldogs, a shellacking by 52 points, 16-7, 103 Carlton. Great scoreline against the Bulldogs' poultry, 7-9-51. A six-goal final term, four goals to Eddie Betts, three goals to Harry Mackay. Pretty impressive. Two to Mitch McGovern, two to Michael Gibbons, didn't call him Sam, and two to Jack Martin. Uh, Vandermeer, the only multiple goal kicker for the Doggies. This was a win set up in the first term, finding the Blues. They were on right from the start tonight, really capitalising on some great centre square work. Um, They had the edge in the ruck, and they certainly had the edge in the centre clearances early on. In fact, 5-1 in the first quarter, the centre clearances, and I reckon they scored from at least three of them. Um, and what that was interesting because the Bulldogs actually had more of the ball and more scoring opportunities all up. In fact, in the end, the Bulldogs uh, finished with an edge in the inside 50 count of 53 to 40. And yet 53 inside 50s produced only 16 scoring shots And for the Blues, 40 produced 23. That is a pretty handy average. And I dare say Luke Beveridge would be pretty disappointed in both his defence and the defensive work of his midfield. Who drove it for the Blues? Well, Sam Walsh, uh, a welcome return to form by him. He ended up with 22 disposals, leading possession getter for the Blues. Matthew Kennedy, who came in for this game, certainly had an impact. He had 20 Will Setterfield, 20. Ed Kernow, Sam Petrevsky, Seaton, 19 each. Cade Simpson and Sam Doherty, staunch and uh, also effective on the rebound. Off the halfback line, 32 touches between them. And the rest, well, Gibbons bobbed up with two goals. Eddie Betts bobbed up with four. They also had plenty of the footy. And a bit of a real team effort, this. The likes of Jack Nunes, he bobbed up with the goal at important stage. Jack Martin chipped in with a couple. They all played their part, um, and certainly this is this season's version of the Blues is a much more attacking and positive football team, and uh, good to see it rewarded, that more adventurous spirit, with a win like this over a really, really disappointing Bulldog outfit, Finey. Uh, 27 to Lockie Hunter, 26 to Jack McRae, 26 for Bailey Smith, East Melbourne's finest mullet. Uh, but didn't really get enough support. Skipper Marcus Bondempelli tried tried his guts out, but uh, he was held to 22 today and only a goal. And they just couldn't get goals from enough different sources. Josh Bruce, well, couldn't follow up that six-goal haul. In fact, he was held to just six disposals and uh, only two marks for the game. 
and didn't register even a behind on the scoreboard. Uh, gee, I hope this isn't becoming the Bulldogs' signature. They look like they're on a roll, but this was a real setback for them. Conversely, the Blues, they finally arrested that problem of the slow starts, finally got off to a flyer themselves, and look what happened. They got on a roll, momentum built, and they ended up with a really good win. Great sign for them and one of their better victories for quite some time, I would suggest. What do you make of this one? Well, this is my... When you factor in the margin, when you factor in the Bulldogs gaining momentum over the last three weeks, when you factor in Luke Beveridge tickled pink, particularly with his defence, look how miserly they had been over the last three weeks. Miserly, I tell you. Eastern Wood returning last week only to boost that. Yes, Crozier was out this week, obviously a big loss. But factor in all those things, and Rowan, this is by far and away my biggest upset of the season. Impossible to predict. 52-point win. That is a smashing of a very, very well-liked finals aspirant. A lot of people tipping big things to the doggies, myself included this year, and after a slow start, felt that the last three weeks had put them on track to really point the ship at top four. Well, a team that is sort of notorious for over the last decade and a half for showing a bit, but in the end delivering not enough, has stopped them in their tracks. And if ever Carlton had a platform from which to head back into the finals, this is that platform. Like This is a great win. Look, I was harsh on Sam Walsh, as you were on Zarakis, and uh, I felt he should have been dropped. And on the numbers, he could have been dropped. But I tell you what, what a good response by him. And I guess the one question for the doggies is your midfield, possession-wise, easily countered their opponents, yet were comfortably beaten. Are you handling the ball too many times is the question that Luke Beveridge has to ponder over tonight, losing by 52 points to a team that got a lot less of the midfield ball but used it so much better. Well, round six, finishing with a bang. That is the entire round done and dusted. Let's kick back Fonny and have a discussion about life. Life Hacks. Building a better world. All right, I'm going to say right off the top, Fonny, all my life hacks this week venture away from sport and football territory. Um, All right, here's a first. I got up this morning and, uh, as I am prone to do, had a look at the news and the newspapers and what they had to say for themselves. And I saw the front page of the Sunday Herald Sun. I thought, oh, there's a sudden and arguably welcome change of heart. They had the entire front page with a big headline saying, we will beat this virus. Coronavirus has cut Victoria to the core and how we respond will not only decide who lives and dies, it will decide the very future of our state. Today, as we stand cut off from the rest of Australia, the Sunday Herald Sun calls on all Victorians to unite as one in the fight against coronavirus. Honourable sentiments, correct? Of course they are. So I uh, flicked through the paper a bit further and I got to the opinion pages. And what is the main story on the opinion pages? It is a column by Peter Credlin, headlined, A State of Disbelief. Premier with all the power cannot pass the buck on his shambles. And I'll just read you the second paragraph. She says... I'm in Melbourne at the moment, and it's a plague-ridden city in a basket-case state led by a man 
who is a pitiful mix of political rat cunning, spin, and unwarranted self-belief. Well, I've got two words for you, Peter Kredlin. Piss off. You're not wanted here. You were an advisor to arguably the worst prime minister this country's ever seen. So you can parade all your prejudice on the barely watched Sky News channel, but you can do the rest of us a favour and keep your opinions to yourself. As for the Herald Sun, don't sell us this crap about we will all unite, we're all in it together, and then peddle that absolute garbage inside the pages of your paper after three or four months of all your various columnists doing nothing but attack the government for anything it did, positive or negative. You have been on a relentless four-year campaign to undermine the Premier, undermine the government. Uh, all your columnists, whatever paper they have represented, have been doing everything they can to not support any governmental efforts with the virus, be it federal or state governments. First, you argued that it was all a hoax, it wasn't a big deal, uh, there shouldn't be a lockdown, the economy should be opened up, and now you're going around finger-pointing and looking to apportion blame for any spike in the virus. That is about as unteam an effort as I can think of. You're a bunch of hypocrites and you're a disgrace to the media industry. All right, Fanny, you're up. Did Peter Credlin call Melbourne plague-ridden? She did. Well, you can't get away with that. I mean, hyperbole is... Hyperbole needs to be questioned when framed in an article of opinion and, and fact-giving. I mean, to, to emphasise her story, she has described, uh, you know, somebody taking a piss as the Yarra River. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, Embarrassing. well, on the, on Play, the same day, they're on a front... Plague-ridden plague now. On the, on the same day, they run a frame page saying we all have to unite together. Okay, well, that is a perfect segue into my first life hack. And that is talk about splitting up the nation. When the going gets tough, I cannot say Australia has hung tough. I don't ever want to hear that song, I am, you are, we are Australian, ever again. From Chris Reason's outrageous Melbourne virus oh, yeah. to various premiers locking the door, including the New South Wales Health Minister, locking the door, keeping Victorians out. It's your problem. You are the cause of the spike and the second wave of the coronavirus. That's why we don't want any of you in our state. You know what, mate? If you actually do... The entire pathway of the coronavirus, you'll find that much of it in this country stems from the Ruby Princess. Well handled there, New South Wales Health Minister. But I'm doing exactly what I note all of Australia's doing, and that is splitting up on state lines. We've even gone further. There have been attacks on Melbourne or Greater Melbourne, the Melbourne bubble by people outside the Melbourne bubble in Victoria demanding that we stay within the bubble, don't come to their pristine parts of Victoria, like, you know, the the uh, wonderfully pristine hinterland that is Corio. Look, we're in it together. 
lines of state boundaries are simply lines on maps. They don't prevent the spread of the virus. If we want to lock down state by state, street by street, high rise by high rise, we can. And that is up to the authorities. But surely as a nation, we don't therefore point fingers at those people in lockdown areas and start to question their hygiene, their morals, their willingness to fight this as a nation. Anybody that's got the coronavirus is no worse than anybody that doesn't. And we are quickly coming to a point of you know, this disgusting, terrible situation that happens in wartime of apportioning blame and with it, assigning hatred. It's quite scary and very wrong. Uh, yeah, well said. Well said. And uh, actually, I've got one coming up, which sort of delves into that territory as well. Okay, my second one. Um, obviously, we're in lockdown here in Victoria. That means you can only venture outside for um, certain purposes, one of which is shopping. Uh, I had to go to Chemist Warehouse at Chadston yesterday to have a prescription filled. I also took the opportunity to buy some face masks because um, I only had one left and uh, I needed some new ones. And I've heeded the warnings, uh, people now being asked to wear face masks out in public. I think by and large Victorians, well, until recently anyway, have been trying to do the right thing. But I've got to say, finding my faith in that wavered a little after I went to Chetty. There weren't that many people around, which was probably a good sign. But I reckon less than or fewer than half the people that I saw in my brief visit were wearing face masks. And it says to me um, that there is still not enough people taking this seriously or either that or thinking it's not going to happen to me uh, because, for example, this is a southeastern suburb and all these new cases seem to be in the inner north or in the northwest. Um, and that's a really dangerously irresponsible attitude to have. Uh, I don't want to do my share of finger pointing, but it is disappointing to see people not taking that message seriously. I went to Gimmers Warehouse wearing my last face mask and wearing a pair of latex gloves. Uh, do you think that is overdoing it? Well, I'm one of the people who, should they get this, are perhaps most vulnerable. I have a um, pre-existing heart condition and uh, I've done some disturbing reading, which indicates that people with my sort of... Uh, uh, what's the word, composition, are uh, um, most likely to really suffer terribly the effects of the coronavirus. So I'm pretty keen to avoid it and I'm pretty keen for my fellow Victorians to help me avoid it by doing what they can, not to either pass on the infection themselves or to prevent themselves catching it. So if you've got to get out there, Melburnians, please put on a face mask. It's not that hard. They're not that expensive. They're easily purchased and you're doing yourselves and the rest of us a favour. All right, Fanny, your second. It also is to do with lockdown too, as we are now in that phase. And I do find that I have become a little bit lockdown savvy, as much as I wish that I was not living in a town that was facing these lockdown measures once again. What we did go through with um, no previous experience and therefore 
blindly we tread into the unknown the first time, I must say we are more prepared for this time. So things like shopping, uh, certainly the wife and I now know where to go and, and sort of how to do a a single sweep of certain places to get our weekly rations, as it's almost become, of fruit and vegetables and also pasta that can be hard to get at supermarkets, but we know that it's easier to get at a sort of um, specialist European delis, so we've had no problems there. We also are far better prepared spatially in the house for phase two or the second time the kids go online to do their learning. So that's all been prepared. And I've got to say that sort of you become remarkably, not resilient, but you become, we we are quite um, malleable in terms of how we can adjust to a different set of circumstances. And as I said, what the first time was marching into the great unknown and not scary, but we were sort of feeling our way through it is now something that we, certainly in our household, and I wonder whether others are the same, we are now very comfortable to put into place those measures that need to be taken to guarantee that we are both prepared in a family sense for meals, in a family sense for medical supplies, including masks, and also in an educational sense. We're all ready and there's no sort of screaming and worrying that we're not going to be there on time. So... Sadly, experience is a good thing when it comes to lockdown too. All right, uh, my final one. Uh, I haven't done one of these for a bit, but a bit of a TV recommendation, and I'm doing it after only a brief taste of this show, and yes, I'm a bit late to it. In fact, I'm three years late to it. But uh, Abby and I have started watching The Handmaid's Tale, Finey. Oh, you, boy. Mate. Is it gripping? It is incredibly dark. It is incredibly hard to watch. But boy, is it well made. And the way that uh, it so effectively builds the tension um, is I've only seen two episodes, but oh no, sorry, three episodes, but I'm absolutely sucked in. I know there's three seasons now, so absolutely looking forward to it. No spoilers, please, anyone. But. Um, Gee, there's some great viewing on the streaming services. Uh, this one available on Stan. Well, the first two seasons anyway. I think season three is on SBS On Demand. But uh, brilliant stuff, really well made. Such a disturbing storyline, such uncomfortable viewing. And I've got to say, finally, given the sort of climate we're living in, uh, in global terms, not just here, um, I, I found myself several times wondering not only, boy, um, is this a documentary or a drama? But uh, could this happen here? Uh, and you might think it's pretty far-fetched, but, uh, boy, a few things, even in three episodes I've seen already, have made me worry about us uh, just getting a bit complacent about the way we live and allowing things to slip from them, certain democratic freedoms for starters. And I reckon a few million people in the US might have been thinking that over the last few years since the show started as well but I've loved it so far I think um, I'm really looking forward to watching all of it I had heard great things about it and they're absolutely justified if you haven't seen it it's a very heavy watch but uh, well worthwhile The Handmaid's Tale all right your last one I watched quite a bit of that with my wife I had to drop out because 
it is brilliant conceptually brilliant it's based on the on famous book by some female author I don't Mar- know. margaret atwood yeah um that's it let, yeah this is no spoiler alert but the clouds don't clear, Rowan. It don't get any cheerier. It, it, it doesn't breezy up, if you know what I mean. How, yeah. how are all the women named in it? Like, of Rowan? Of What what, what are their names? Yeah, well, I'm still getting my head around the names. But, uh, well, the two main characters so far both start with O, yeah. yeah. Um, but I have I have learned a couple of phrases like, under his eye and blessed be thy fruit. Yeah, but, but it's like the women connected with the men in it. You take the man's name, of Rowan or something, or... You know that would be your your woman. I started calling Natalie of Mark. That didn't go down very well, and it didn't last very long. Okay, I'm not surprised. Interestingly, I too ever <laughs> we did not in any way um, consult each other on this or talk about it prior to the program. But I too have a TV recommend a show that I've just started watching that also has been around for quite a while that I'm late on the uptake to watch. And I didn't watch it because I just thought, how? No, 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 no way. You're not going to f- sort of um, profit off the back of one of my favourite movies of all time. Now, the TV series Fargo, I just couldn't work out how you take Fargo, this great movie, and make of it a TV series. Well, I'm fairly deep into the first series of Fargo, and ooh la la. <laughs> oh, is Billy Bob Thornton a worry? You know, this is dark and this is, there's a, a few light moments as is the case in Fargo and, you know, that sort of Minnesota lifestyle and those accents from North Dakota and up north, a bit of fun with that. But generally, it's pretty dark and slowly but surely, Billy Bob Thornton is working his way into the pantheon of of TV stroke movie baddies. And I've got to say, Mark, I made a mistake in back back burning this one i don't know if you've seen the tv series fargo rowan but it i haven't with a mighty mighty big shoes to fill it's filling them very nicely indeed all right uh, there is life hacks for this week a uh, bit of a uh, bit of fire channel there finally you know i think we can expand on that and we'll do it with a good rant on footyology the rant off all right, no mucking around. Count me in, Finey. I want to go. Oh, sounds like you're ranting mad. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with lockdown too, Finey. Already. And yes, it's only been four days. And don't get me wrong here. I absolutely understand the necessity of it and agree with the rationale. But boy, has it become a test of one's mental faculties and one's tolerance, of which admittedly I have very little. Certainly not for some of the hypocrisy and lashings of unadulterated bullshit to which I'm being subjected, even without venturing into the outside world. Now, earlier in this podcast, I touched on hypocrisy. In fact, I could do a separate rant on that virtually every week these days, because that previous mention was just concerning the reporting of the pandemic and the hypocrisy, not just in the media, but the subjects of its reporting extends everywhere. Here's one example. Have you noticed, finally, how supposed important social issues pre-COVID are now just being completely ignored, like gambling, for instance? Now, I'll be honest, while I recognise the gambling addiction and its insidious impact on families and lives is an important issue, it hasn't generally been a hot-button subject for me. But that is rapidly changing, because I swear that this footy season, while all our football watching has taken place via the TV screen, 
the seeming 2,528 betting agencies now plying their trade in this country have upped the ante. Seriously, watch the footy on TV now and just about every second ad is for either points bet, sports bet, bet365, bet easy, ladbrokes, or the newest addition to the ranks, get sucked into one of those multis and lose your whole pay packet while your kids go hungry bet. Yeah, okay, I made that one up. But there's so many of these bloody things around now that they're starting to run out of available names. So where's the hypocrisy in that? Well, it's always been there in that disclaimer they're required to add at the end about gambling responsibly. A line rattled off in a microsecond after they've spent the previous 30 telling you how cool and lucrative doing all your dough on some ridiculous new wagering format is. But what about these bastards even pretending to care whilst at the same time ramping up their levels of advertising, knowing they've got a captive lockdown audience, which going spare trying to ease the boredom, just might be a little more susceptible than usual to the alleged attraction of having a flutter. Yeah, that's responsible. As, of course, is the act of simply accepting those filthy advertising dollars by those large media organisations now struggling for a quid and who, let's face it, would accept a tin pot dictator's money these days. And should they be the same media organisations who will routinely do one of those special investigations on the scourge of gambling before cutting to an ad break, which will contain material from one of those same betting agencies? Of course they would, because they take us all for idiots, like the Herald Sun did today, preaching kumbaya on the front page and calling on all Victorians to unite, while on the opinion pages unleashing another of their attack dogs loose on the government. I don't know about anyone else listening to this, but I've had an absolute bloody gutful of being played for a fool, of rank opportunists attempting to exploit people's fears, ignorance or bigotry when it comes to a health crisis, or in the case of gambling, just preying on people's vulnerability like vultures. No, this isn't a sarcastic rant. There's no punchline today because I genuinely am angry and I'm intent on calling out this level of bastardry which these people think they can get away with. I guess if you're looking for some sort of closer, I might as well quote Peter Finch in that great movie Network, where the world-weary and slightly deranged Howard Beale departs from the teleprompter to announce, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Well, Finey, I'm bloody well not. So that means we can't uh, get any sponsorship money from betting agencies? Not for some time, no. Uh, all I mean, right, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to count you in before that gets you into trouble. Okay. Three, two, one, rant. What exactly is a pen now used for? I sat on one the other day in my car. I was cleaning out some stuff from the glove box and I put it on the driver's seat and I ended up sitting on the pen. And I thought, do I need you? Am I ever going to use you again? Mm. Well, just in case of an emergency, I'll keep it. Short for taking down somebody's number plate in an emergency or scribbling down some details barked at you by your wife over the phone because you don't know how to use the notepad on your own phone. I don't think we need pens anymore. And the problem is that in my childhood, I invested two or three years in primary school of being persecuted, harangued, and in the end, corporally punished because I didn't know how to use a pen properly and I had to be taught to do so. You see, I was probably the last generation of students being born left-handed and naturally left-handed who was smacked by a long ruler into trying to be right-handed. Yes, 
I had to learn cursive writing the cursive way by swearing under my breath at Mrs. Bright, formerly Miss Cousins or vice versa, I can't remember, smacking smacking me with a metre-long ruler she used to draw lines on the blackboard because I kept reverting back to using my left hand. We had fountain pens, crazy as it seems, fountain pens. There was a little well ink on each of our wooden tables or we could go for modernity and use the new ink pen cartridge included that actually didn't require the well. Either way, any spillage of ink or any smudging of ink, any poor use of the blotter was met with a smack over the knuckles from Mrs Cousins. Being left-handed, my hand at the end of the day was red-knuckled and blue-palmed, blue from the ink I was smudging, red from the belting I was receiving. That went on for two or three years. It seemed worthwhile. I remained left-handed, but always, ever since, wrote in a very upright manner so as not to smudge. And now I realise it was all for naught. All the belting, all the crying, all the complaining, and all the ruined school shirts with ink on them, for naught. Because now... The pen is a relic of the past, used by some, very few, to take down the names of people that cause them problems in traffic. Maybe I'll use my pen to write down the name Mrs. Cousins and get her back for once and for all, then throw it out the bloody window. Well, I'm glad we had a bit of whimsy there after some fairly serious material. And I've got Oh, to no, say very- some, some, some deep felt probably psychiatrist requiring uh, re- sort of um, what's it called when you keep memories from surfacing repressed, repressed. memories yeah I was yeah. repressing those memories I'm telling you I looked at that pen and thought why in the F did I go through all the heartache I used to get belted every day for writing left-handed well I'm the same age as you we did pretty sure we did uh, the same years at the same levels, and I'm left-handed, and that never happened to me. I copped uh, a good pasting, mate. Well, there you go. That is very, very surprising and very disturbing. And, you know, COVID-like, all the left-handers were corralled into this little part of the room. (laughs) Starting to sound like the handmaid's tale. Correct. All right. uh, That is the end of our Round 6 review. Thanks for your company. Uh, Quick shout-out to the sponsors again, Finey. Big thank you to Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Eat it with your left hand, eat it with your right hand. Actually, eat it with both hands because they're a bloody big burger and bloody good as well. And when you're thinking of renovations, think West Point Properties, Nick Spartel's Inner City Rebuilds, the very, very best available. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, our wonderful sponsors. Thank you, our wonderful audience. We appreciate your support. If you want to support us uh, in a more material sense, Uh, jump on our Patreon page, look for Footyology, and uh, you can subscribe to all things Footyology for five US dollars per month. And uh, our subscriber base uh, is growing slowly but steadily. So thank you to those who have already subscribed and get your friends and family to subscribe too. Uh, Thanks for listening. Hope your team had a good win on the weekend. Uh, We will be back on Thursday morning with our preview of Round 7. Catch you later.